0: Deep into History is independent and proudly listener-supported. Before we begin, I'd like to take a moment to thank my newest patrons, Robert, Janessa, Stuart, and Amy, who went to patreon.com slash deep history and pledged their support to keep this unique experience we share ad-free and blessedly absent of corporate influence. Amy, Stuart, Janessa, and Robert, my new historians, I salute you and thank you from the center of my being. I'm so honored to welcome Stego, Jessica Manor, and Doge King, who generously chose to support the show at an elevated level. So, Doge King, Jessica, and Stego, your level of support for Deep Into History is peerless. Consider this a foreword. I wanted to explain to you why I had to change subjects for this year's Halloween with your Loremaster episode. One of my original patrons, Alice, asked me to look into a story that she had read on the website for Military Magazine, and has appeared to be presented as credible on many other like sites. It is a bizarre, weird, and profane deathbed confession of a soldier who, because of his small stature, served as a tunnel rat during the Vietnam War. The original source for this story was a long series of Reddit posts that became so wildly popular that the writers at these magazines and websites did only superficial verification in terms of vaguely placing times and dates, though they did confirm the existence of the military bases that are mentioned. However, when I looked into the subject myself, I found the posts that formed the tale to be rude, crude, and at the same time utterly enchanting. I found it to be at least plausible in the context of a spooky historical Halloween story. The script was written, a tale I called Whisper. I surrounded the fantastic deathbed confession with historical context, and thought that I would present it through the eyes of a person who understands hearing voices, which plagued the person involved. However, when I reached out to anyone who could possibly verify the details, or a witness to the fantastic events, the replies that I received were not what I would consider credible. But fear not, in its place I give you this epic tale from our past, which I believe you will enjoy even more. The switch in topics so late in the month compelled me to consult my friend and fellow podcaster, Laurel, who co-hosts a wonderful, insightful, high-tailing through history, only to find her, at that moment, writing her own episode on our hero-to-be as well. She was so encouraging. Thus, when the mood strikes you, you should definitely put some smoke in the air with Laurel and KT and enjoy hightailing through history. Consider that as we go forward, and with that said, this forward comes to an end. This is Deep in History, and I'm your host Arjun Hundle. Today's blood-soaked saga comes down to us from a book called The Primary Chronicle, or more poetically, The Tale of Bygone Years. Originally a codex of histories that became sagas as they were written and rewritten to suit different narratives of different dynasties. And this saga is the saga of the peoples that dwelt in the regions that will become known as Kievan Rus, the lands between the Carpathian Mountains in the west and the Urals in the east, the Baltic Sea in the north and the Black in the south, a land rich in natural resources from its forests, mountains, lakes, and rivers like the mighty Dnieper. The Chronicle covers the goings-on in the region from biblical times all the way to the year 1117 in the Common Era. It is one of those documents where myth, legend, and history are blended. Thus, while drawing from the primary chronicle, I have also updated the story with the latest historical and archaeological data on the subject. This area, this massive plain, sometimes called the Sarmatian Plain, from ancient times until the rise of the Mongols, functioned as a highway for tribal mass migration from the vast Asian steppes in the east to Europe. In the 10th century Common Era, it was home to many different tribes of people, Slavs, Chuds, Marians, Severians, and many, many others. All of these tribes were pagan and practiced their own religions with their own unique cultures. And in the late 9th century, bursting out of the north, came the Vikings, called the Varangians, sailing their longboats down the mighty rivers of the region from the Baltic Sea. At first raiding and then establishing trading posts, and finally invading in force. The first successful large-scale invasion came under the command of the Viking high chieftain Rurik. His warriors conquered inland, and Rurik established his capital at Novgorod in the north near the mouth of the river Volkov. His reign was long and violent, continually pushing the borders of his realm outward by conquest or by forcing smaller local tribes to become his vassals, who would pay tribute and supply warriors when called upon. King Rurik ruled for many years and on his deathbed he handed over power to his relative named Oleg a wise choice Oleg was fiercely loyal to Rurik and not only managed the affairs of the nascent principality well but vastly expanded its borders to the south conquering and forcing the submission of every tribe along the way to Kiev and once he had taken the city he declared it the new capital Situated on a series of hills overlooking the Dnieper River, Kiev was heavily fortified and because of its central location, it allowed Oleg to exert dominance and control over every major trade route, which brought great wealth and power from tolls and tariffs. The Various other princes of the tribes Oleg ruled over were nominal vassals, only submitting to Rus' Varangian rule because of the overwhelming power of their army. They paid their taxes in the form of tribute, a percentage of the resources they harvested from their bountiful lands. Kievan Rus, as this country would come to be called, was a fragile and perilously loose alliance of pagan tribes, each with its own identity and unique culture. Thus Oleg married his ward, the young Prince Igor, to the daughter of a powerful Viking chieftain from the north so that their military dominance over their subject tribes was assured. Her name was Princess Olga, refined, learned, beautiful, and courageous. With the princess came hundreds of warriors and their families, who would massively bolster the power of the throne. After the death of Oleg, Igor and Olga became the Grand Prince and Princess of Kivan Rus. Since the tribes they ruled over had royal families of their own and would never accept a king, The title Grand was added to exhibit the power of their station, thus Grand Prince and Princess, though Warlord of Warlords may paint a better picture of the political arrangement at this early stage. The love between Igor and Olga seems to have been genuine, and they soon achieved a unique synergy in their rule. Grand Prince Igor considered himself a warrior and strategist equal to his ancestors. And wished to outdo the deeds of his father Rurik and uncle Oleg, and expand his realm south. In his Viking heart, he dreamed of taking the golden city, Miklaburg, the capital of the Roman Empire, Constantinople, Byzantium, far to the south. Prince Igor's military campaigns were initially successful in the sense that he launched major raids against rebellious local tribes around Kiev, who wished to test the power of the new young grand prince. Igor brought them into line with his rule, brutally suppressing the rebellions. However, when he reached for what he saw as his destiny, the conquest of Constantinople, taking the throne and naming himself Emperor, and thus forcing the sagas to record him as the greatest Viking conqueror of all time, the results were embarrassing. His two attempted invasions in 941 and 944 Common Era, though resulting in a face saving peace treaty, were extremely costly in lives, the last major naval battle having resulted in his fleet of 1,000 Varengian longboats being utterly decimated by a much smaller force of Byzantine dragon ships, so named because they spat Greek fire and burnt the boats and Igor's ambitions to cinders. It was during these massive campaigns when Igor came to rely on and respect the knowledge, wit, and brilliance of his young wife for it was she who actually ruled Kievan Rus in his absence. And Igor truly fell in love with Olga for this. Her mind outshone her spectacular beauty. As Grand Princess, Olga was an expert administrator, keeping the subject tribes, all at least slightly hostile to their Viking rule in order. Always fair but firm, knowing that to show weakness was to invite rebellion, yet to rule with an iron fist would provoke one. Educated and learned Olga knew her subject tribes were never very friendly with each other. In some cases, open wars had only been stopped because they had been subjugated. At court, she expertly kept the fires of all the tribes' rivalries carefully stoked, so that each knew that they needed the throne to keep the peace, dealing with the symphony of treachery and intrigue that was politics in Kievan Rus' like a master conductor. Thus, not only maintaining the peace, but the flow of tribute so that the treasury was not bankrupted by Igor's constant and ludicrously expensive wars. An incredible feat. It was during these wars with Byzantium that their union was finally blessed by the birth of their long-awaited child. Grand Princess Olga gave birth to a boy, Svatislav, who became the light of their lives, a sentiment reflected in his name, for Svatislav means one who walks in the light. Yet even with an heir he adored and a wonderful wife, for Grand Prince Igor, it was not enough. In his mind's eye, he had failed as a son of Rurik and a successor to Oleg because he had not vastly extended Kievan Rus' lands or power. This left him bitter and eager to lord his power over his subject tribes. So it was that in the woodland realm of the Drevlians, in 945, Grand Prince Igor went too far. He was personally leading the yearly tribute collection. In the case of the Drevlians, a proud and fierce pagan people who lived in harmony with their vast forest, their taxation was paid in the form of wax, honey, furs, wood, and herbs. Grand Prince Igor had recently learned that the ever-rebellious Drevlians had stopped sending this tribute to Kiev while he was away on campaign and that it was only through the diplomatic cunning of his beloved Olga that the Drevlians had not sought to openly challenge his power, as they had rebelled many times before. Which is why he led this collection himself, a show of strength, directly into the heart of their territory, their capital and only true fortified town, Iskorosten. The Grand Prince and his entourage were received with all due respect, the Drevlians promptly delivered all that they owed for the previous year, and Prince Igor, with his long column of wagons full of tribute, proceeded back south to Kiev. It is said that the Drevlians, the people in the streets of Iskoristun, who watched the Varangian overlord leave, had faces filled with loathing and contempt for having to pay anything at all. Igor noticed these looks, and the hostile silence of the crowd that should have been cheering their Grand Prince. His pride was wounded, and as he rode further and further away, he grew more enraged with each mile that this forest tribe had dared not pay their tribute while he was away on campaign, an insult and an act of an enemy. And even with the vast sum his men had just collected, Igor decided that the Drevlians owed more. They must make up for all the tribute they had failed to pay. Thus it was that Igor sent the wagon column on. And with only a small escort of retainers, returned to Iskorosten and burst into the citadel of their leader, Prince Maul. Igor demanded that they pay more immediately, to assemble another wagon train filled with tribute to be ready to depart at dawn the next morning. Then he stormed out of the room. Furious, Drevlian nobles gathered around their Prince Mall. They had given all they could, and to ask their people to assemble more would leave them poor and destitute. Prince Maul, equally angry and no less proud than any tribal prince, considered the situation. Igor had few men with him, a young wife and child, and he saw a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to not only take revenge on the arrogant grand prince, but also a chance to seize his throne. Thus he responded with these words, if a wolf comes among sheep, he will take away the whole flock one by one unless he be killed. If we do not thus kill him now, he will destroy us all." And then he gestured to his warriors. The Drevlians slew Grand Prince Igor's retainers and seized him violently. He was taken beyond the walls of Iskorosten to a nearby hilltop, where the Drevlians had tied down two young birch trees that stood opposite each other. Ropes were then bound to Igor's limbs, and once secure, The birch trees were cut free, snapping upright and tearing Igor in half. This horrific means of execution was symbolic and would spread the message across the pagan tribes that though the Drevlians had bent their knees to Kiev, they would bend no more. Immediately after the execution, Prince Maul and his advisors plotted their next move. They had killed the Grand Prince, an act that would spread terror and fear across the land. They reasoned that all they need do was seize control of the heir, three-year-old Svatislav, and offer a marriage alliance to his young mother, the Grand Princess Olga, who would surely be terrified at the threat of facing a major uprising. A Drevlian advisor said, See, we have killed the Prince of Rus. Let us take his wife Olga for our Prince Mal, and then we shall obtain possession of Svatislav and work our will upon him. So, twenty Drevlian nobles were assembled to deliver the news of Igor's death to Kiev and to demand Olga's immediate marriage to Prince Mal, or else there would be endless war. They took ship on a longboat and rowed hard for the capital. And once there, the Grand Princess sent for them, perhaps thinking that her beloved Igor had asked for the Drevlians to send an embassy to complete some negotiations he had initiated while at their capital. When the Drevelians arrived at the palace, they found the Grand Princess Olga in the throne room, watching three-year-old Svatislav playing and being instructed by his old wizened tutor, Osmund, and on her flank, a step behind in deference, the captain of the city guard, the giant Varangian commander Sveinwald. The Drevlians informed her that Grand Prince Igor was dead, that they had killed him because of the greed and disrespect he had shown their mighty people. The Drevlians had risen, and it was their time to lead Kivan Rus. Then, not even giving the Grand Princess a moment to absorb the devastating news of the murder of Igor, the Drevlians said that if Olga wished peace, she should wed their Prince Mal, who had sworn to raise her son Svatislav as his own. He would act as regent until the heir came of age. We can only imagine the shock, the rage, the sadness Grand Princess Olga was experiencing in that moment. Imagining the horrific murder of her husband, then looking to the light of their lives, Crown Prince Svatislav, still playing, shielded by the innocence of a toddler, blissfully unaware that his father was dead, and his killer was demanding to marry his mother, and that he, the heir to the Rurikid dynasty, would be raised by this Prince Mal, a man her dear, sweet Svatislav would be honor-bound to kill when he came to manhood. This meant that her boy would most likely experience an accident or mysterious illness or that they would be separated and young Svatislav's mind warped and corrupted, turning him into a pawn the Drevlians could control. And even if her son resisted this control, he could still be killed if he became inconvenient because through their marriage, Prince Mal, his power entrenched, could assume the throne, presenting it to the people as a generous act for the good of the realm. She saw it all. All this emotion, all this consideration, took but an instant. And when she looked back to the Drevlians, they had no idea that they were no longer speaking to the same woman. The young, vibrant, and beautiful princess of Pleskov was gone. The grand princess of Kiev they had known no longer existed. For in that instant she reached deep within herself, summoning the strength and cunning of her ancestors, and decided on a course of action that her honor demanded. One that, if successful, would ensure no one would ever threaten her son's throne again. Thus, when Olga spoke, she was Viking. This is the tale of the rise of the most epic queen humanity had known since Olympias of Macedon. The saga of one of the most bloody revenge plots, brilliantly later disguised as an effective campaign of political violence the world has ever seen. A myth. A legend. History. So take a deep breath. Let it out slowly. Put some smoke in the air if you choose, and just let your mind float on my voice as we go deep into the 10th century in the Common Era, and experience the magnificence of the one and only Olga of Kiev, in a tale I call, "The Princess and the Saints." Welcome. The throne room, Kiev, seat of the Varangian Voivode, warlord of warlords, the ruler of Kievan Rus. 945, Common Era, exactly where we left off. Viking. Olga spoke to the Drevlians, her words from the tale of bygone years. Your proposal is pleasing to me. Indeed, my husband cannot rise again from the dead. But I desire to honor you tomorrow in the presence of my people. Return now to your boat, and remain there with an aspect of arrogance. I shall send for you on the morrow, and you shall say, we will not ride on horses, nor go on foot. Carry us in our boat, and you shall be carried in your boat. What Grand Princess Olga was conveying, the cultural meaning behind the direct translation, is that the Drevlians must overawe her people with a display of power through a spectacle of finery on the deck of their boat, refusing to move and forcing the people to carry them, an act of submission. Thus, when she publicly accepted their proposal, it would appear that her actions reflected the will of her people so that she could accept the peace terms honorably. Overjoyed, the twenty Drevlian ambassadors agreed and left the throne room. Then Olga picked up her toddler, Svatislav, seeing the tears brimming in the eyes of the ancient tutor, Osmond, who had taught her and come as part of her retinue when she was wed to Igor, her oldest and dearest friend. And then she looked at the Varangian commander, Sveinwald, and in his eyes she saw the rage she felt at the murder of her Igor. And the gall of these Drevlian dogs and their prince mall for having the audacity to think she would share a bed with the man that had killed her beloved. For the intense murderous rage that came flowing out of his eyes at the news of the murder of his prince. His friend Igor had Sveinval transformed. And she knew Odin Allfather was with her. Because before her stood a berserker out of Norse legend. Divine rage personified exactly what she needed him to be. Then Olga gave the order. The next morning, the twenty Drevlians stood on the deck of their ship, the nobles dressed in their most opulent finery, and their warriors in freshly scrubbed chainmail, their jewels and armor gleaming in the sunlight, creating the spectacle to overawe the people, just as Grand Princess Olga had requested. Once the people of Kiev had assembled around them, the Drevlians gruffly declared that their ship would be their palanquin, and demanded that the people lift it out of the river and carry them into the presence of their Grand Princess, who would formally submit to them and accept Prince Maul as her husband and do them, his ambassadors, all honor. Seemingly cowed, the people obeyed. It was the labor of hundreds to lift the longboat out of the river Dnieper and carry it up into the city. At the top of the hill, the Drevlians saw Olga waiting to receive them. She was beautiful, a vision of perfection, class, and elegance out of the sagas. None of the twenty Drevlians could take their eyes off her, which was exactly what Olga had planned. For when the ship stopped, the people let go, and it dropped down into a deep and massive pit that Olga had ordered dug during the nights. The Drevlians screamed in dismay and horror as the people of Kiev began filling in the pit with the earth they had so recently disrupted. Grand Princess Olga walked to its edge to watch her enemies be buried alive, and she inquired whether they had found the honor to their taste. And soon, there were no screams, pleading for mercy, vows of revenge, or accusations of betrayal, or anything else, because buried alive, the massive pit filled in. It was as if the Drevlians had never come to Kiev. Olga immediately dispatched a messenger to Prince Mal at his citadel in Iskorostan, with the reply that she accepted his offer of marriage, but many of her retainers had fled her service at the news of the death of her husband and that she required an honor guard suitable to her station to escort her properly and see to her safety on the long journey. Elated at the news that he would soon be the supreme power in the land, Prince Maul summoned his most powerful nobles and ordered them to assemble their household guards and march to Kiev to fetch Olga for him. Perhaps a week later, when they reached the city, all the Drevlians were exhausted, filthy from the road and stinking of horse. The Grand Princess directed them into the city's huge main bathhouse, saying that it was only proper for them to rest and clean themselves before they discussed anything further. They happily accepted. And once the entire party had entered, Olga had her warriors bar the wooden gate from the outside, locking the Drevlians in. And then the massive building was set on fire, killing every Drevlian inside. In one hot, fiery stroke, she had wiped out nearly all the command structure of her enemy. Olga then dispatched yet another messenger, informing Prince Maul that she was on her way. But before she entered Eskoristen for their wedding, she wished to be taken to the place of Igor's death so that she could properly mourn for him and perform all suitable rituals to the gods so that he could enter Valhalla as he deserved. Prince Mal had not heard a word from the men he had sent to Kiev, but took this as an honorable request. Though if he had the ears to hear it and had not been so blinded by his drive for power, he may have noticed that Grand Princess Olga was in fact giving him an order. Her words, Prepare great quantities of mead outside the city where you killed my husband that I may weep over his grave and hold a funeral feast for him. Then Olga prepared. It would take time to assemble the forces for what she had in mind for the Dreblians. So she left old Osmund to look after Svatislav and commander Sveinwald to muster her army and then she left the city marching north. And when Grand Princess Olga moved, She moved with the viking women of her court. Many hundreds had followed her from her native homeland in the north with their warrior husbands that were part of her dowry. They were bound to her by ties of love and kinship and would do anything she asked of them. They were all equally enraged at the murder of Grand Prince Igor and were ready to carry out her plan exactly. When they arrived at the hill outside of Iskoristend, on the exact spot where Igor had been ripped in half, Olga performed all the holy rituals, made proper sacrifices to the gods, and allowed herself to weep for Igor one last time. All the while, her ladies prepared a great feast to accompany the huge amount of alcohol the Drevlians had gathered for the occasion as requested. The feast was grand, lavish, the Drevlians had never dreamed of eating so well, the ladies of the court charming, flirtatious, enchanting ensuring that every drevelian's cup was always full of their powerful and potent mead it went late into the nights all the food drink music dancing from the festivities but eventually all the 5000 drevelians that attended had passed out at their tables or fallen from their benches drunk or asleep on the ground it was time olga drew her dagger and her ladies descended upon the Drevlians, drawing their daggers and systematically cutting throats from one end of the tent to the next, as their victims lay helpless. In the morning, when the ghastly mass murder scene was discovered by Prince Mal, who had been waiting in the city for the arrival of his new bride, Grand Princess Olga and her ladies had vanished. For after their act of vengeance on behalf of all the women of Kievan Rus, many of whom had lost relatives in the Drevlians' previous rebellions, the Grand Princess and her Viking ladies rode south, hard for the border, where she was met by her army, at the head of which stood Commander Sveinwald, wielding his huge two handed battle axe hell, named in honor of the goddess of death, beyond him thousands of Varangians, Vikings, howling their battle cries at the sight of their magnificent grand princess. And in answer, Olga pointed to the forest behind her, and unleashed Her berserker and her army descended upon the small towns of the woodland realm of the Drevlians like lightning from a strike of Thor's hammer, sacking and burning every single village they came across as they pillaged their way north to Iskoristen. The Drevlian capital was secure on a bluff, with strong wooden walls and palisades. Even with an advanced siege train of that era, which she lacked, it would have been an extremely difficult assault. So Olga ordered her army to besiege the stronghold while she sent messengers to treat with all remaining Drevlian towns. Treat may be putting it gently because Olga's message to all Drevlians outside of Iskoristin was the message of a queen exercising absolute power. Submit and prove your loyalty by sending tribute in the form of food and supplies for her army immediately or suffer her righteous wrath for the murder of Grand Prince Igor. As their southern towns had. Every Drevlian town forswore their allegiance to Prince Maul and took Grand Princess Olga as their ruler. As proof, they sent a continuous stream of supplies which kept her army well fed, which stood her in good stead as the siege of Iskorostan ground on and on for a year. Grand Princess Olga needed this war of vengeance to end. She could not rule Kievan Rus from an army siege camp forever. Beyond the politics of being overlord of so many different tribes, of different people, there were major international affairs to handle. So she sent this message, an open letter to all Escorsten, read aloud to the defenders on the walls from every direction, and from the walls it flowed out onto the nearest streets. Why do you persist on holding out? All your cities have surrendered to me and submitted to tribute. So that the inhabitants now cultivate their fields and their lands in peace, but you rather die of hunger without submitting to tribute. The genius of Olga having her message read this way was that it spread throughout iskoristan and though the Drevelians mistrusted her and hated her after enduring a terrible year of hardship under siege with supplies running critically low, the brink of starvation mere weeks away, that tiny spark of hope for peace. And the thought that they could survive this ordeal that her message sparked among the people forced Prince Mal to answer. The Drevlians responded that they were more than willing to pay tribute and swear new oaths of loyalty to Kiev. But how could they possibly trust her? Olga responded directly, saying that her vengeance for the execution of her husband had been satisfied by the death of the ambassadors and the slaughter at the feast. She had other pressing matters to attend to. As proof of her sincerity and in recognition that the Drevlians of Iskoristin had suffered so very terribly and would need everything they had left to merely hope to survive the coming winter, she said that all she required for this first tribute were the traditional symbols of peace and friendship from the forest people. Her words, Give me three pigeons and three sparrows from each house. The Drevlians gathered the birds. Of which there were thousands who made their nests in the thatched roofs of their wooden dwellings. They placed them in cages which were piled onto wagons and sent out to the Varangian siege lines. And the still wary Drevlians once again shut themselves behind their gates to see if the Grand Princess would truly give them their heart's desire and lift the siege. In camp, Olga gave her orders to her commanders, they were to have their men attach a small piece of sulfur linked by a short string and tie it to the end of each bird's leg. By the time this was complete, for the task proved monumental, there were so many birds and the task very delicate, it was late in the evening. Then, at Olga's command, the cages were thrown open with great fanfare, and alarmed, the birds instinctively flew to the safety of their nests in the city. When the birds moved on the roofs, The sulfur tied to them ignited with the friction as it was dragged along the thatch. As the besieging army watched and waited, first a few plumes of smoke began rising above the walls of Iskoristen, and then many, and then soon an inferno raged. The Drevlians could not fight the fire, their efforts completely useless, because soon the entire city was ablaze. With no choice, desperate to escape the intense heat and choking smoke they threw open their gates and rushed out of the city and into Olga's waiting army. The Drevlian warriors were cut down immediately, and any who tried to fight or flee were brutally massacred. The bulk of the survivors were given to the men of her army as slaves, but Olga did allow some to remain and rebuild Eskoristan on the condition that they spread their tale to anyone and everyone for the rest of their days that this was the fate of any tribe who betrayed her or dared to challenge the power of her family. The princess had exacted her revenge. In the following years, while her beloved sons Svatislav grew to manhood, Grand Princess Olga reorganized the economy and infrastructure of Kievan Rus' massively, setting up trading posts, tribute collection hubs, and crucially, she established hunting lodges. These doubled as garrisons because the warriors of the various different tribes she ruled were sent to serve with warriors from others. This formed social bonds, and if not friendship, at least respect and communication between very different people who had always seen each other as potential enemies. This had the effect of planting the seeds of nationhood, the basis for unity that had always eluded the throne of Kiev. Olga then looked to secure her borders to the south, by seeking an alliance with the Byzantine Empire. In 955, she visited Constantinople herself. The golden city, Miklaburg, was awe-inspiring. And through tales spread of it in the north, it had reached near mythical status to the Norse. But the myths failed to do it justice. Its splendor, sophistication, its magnificent buildings of stone had intimidated more than a few great kings and had an almost enchanting effect on all northern people. But not Olga of Kiev, instead it was she who enchanted the imperial court, and the emperor most of all, from the tale of bygone years. The reigning emperor was named Constantine, son of Leo. Olga came before him, and when he saw that she was very fair of countenance, and wise as well, the emperor wondered at her intellect. He conversed with her, and remarked that she was worthy to reign with him in his city. When Olga heard his words, she replied that she was still a pagan and that if he desired to baptize her, he should perform this function himself. Otherwise, she was unwilling to accept baptism. You see, Grand Princess Olga knew she had caught the emperor's eye. Equally, she delighted in the company of his wife, the Empress Helena. Wishing to find a way to get the trade agreements and possible military alliance she wanted, while not giving offense to either the lustful emperor or his powerful and charming empress, Olga sought out the patriarch of the city at court, the head of the Eastern Church, and expertly questioned him about Christianity and the conversion ceremony. After her baptism, the emperor summoned Olga and made it known to her that he wished her to become his wife. But she replied, How can you marry me after yourself baptizing me and calling me your daughter? For among Christians, that is unlawful, as you yourself must know. Then the emperor said, Olga, you have outwitted me, and he burst out laughing. He gave her many gifts of gold, silver, silks, and various vases, and dismissed her with the warmest regards, calling her his daughter for the rest of his days. Brilliant. In one masterful stroke, Olga of Kiev had not only gotten everything she wanted diplomatically, but had secured the love and friendship of the rulers of the Byzantine Empire. The pagans of Kievan Rus were accepting of their Grand Princess's conversion. And as she had promised, Olga had the first church in Kiev built. When her son, Grand Prince Svatislav, was of an age, he proved to be much like his father Igor in aspect, a warrior who launched several successful wars and campaigns. And just as his father Igor had, he relied on Olga to rule and govern in his absence. One of these wars took his army far away to the lands of the Bulgari. With the majority of Kievan Rus's warriors gone, their neighbors to the east, the Pechenegs, decided that it was the perfect time to invade. They ravaged the lands and besieged Kiev. Grand Princess Olga rallied her people and had them defend the walls of the city until the messenger she had dispatched returned with Svatislav and his army. They held out against every assault, resisting for months until the brutal siege was finally lifted when the Pechenegs discovered that Sladislav's army was nearing Kiev, since Olga had endured every hardship with her people, never eating or drinking any more than anyone else, and had stood with them as a symbol of iron resolve on the walls, her reputation reached levels that bordered on legendary. She was loved and adored by all the tribes. Olga was elderly and became ill soon after the siege had been lifted on July eleventh nine sixty nine She passed away and went on to what comes next, surrounded by her family, as she was given her last rites by her priest. And because she was so loved and respected, many people began converting to this new religion of hers, wishing to be with her grand princess again in the afterlife. The result was that a mere generation later, her grandson, Vladimir the Great, was the first Christian ruler of Kievan Rus, and soon the entire country would convert a feat that would have been impossible without the people's love and reverence for Olga. For this, she was elevated to a saint by both the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic Church. From the tale of bygone years, Olga was the precursor of the Christian land, even as the day spring precedes the sun and as the dawn precedes the day, for she shone like the moon by night, and she was radiant among the infidels like a pearl in the mire since the people were soiled and not yet purified of their sin by holy baptism, but she herself was cleansed by this sacred purification. She was the first from Rus to enter the kingdom of God, and the sons of Rus thus praise her as their leader, for since her death she has interceded with God in their behalf. In addition, she was given the honorific title, Isa Apostolos, equal to the apostles, and is the patron saint of widows and converts. And that's how the princess became the saint. Thank you for listening to Deep the History. I hope you enjoyed The Princess and the Saint. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Deep the History to get your daily blast from the past, as well as posts, maps, and visuals related to every episode. Please tell your friends about the show and consider becoming a patron. And as always, my dear friend, take care of yourself. I truly look forward to the next time we go deep.